You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Today we're going to dive into God's Word, into our own hearts, and my prayer for you this week has been that God would take all of us somewhere deeper than we've ever been. If you've ever been in your faith before and thought to yourself, I want to go deeper, maybe it means you want to learn Greek or something, but maybe it means that you want more of Jesus or you want to know more about what he wants for you in your life, and that's my hope and my prayer for you today. As we get started, how many of you here do like the beach? Raise your hand, you like the beach? Like the beach? All right, you're talkative today. I like that guy. You got extra sleep. You must have used it on the first service. Now you got like a bonus hour because we don't have a 10 o'clock service. Um, what's your favorite beach? Go ahead and say it since you're being verbal. Myrtle. Myrtle. We got South Carolina. Come on. We're the North Carolina people. <laughs> Wrightsville. Carolina. Top. Did you say top sail? No, no, no. It's topsail. Top. You got a little roll. Roll. Topsail. Got a little roll left on um, Curry Beach and Carolina Beach, I guess there are different things you all saying out there. There's a lot of beach. One of the benefits of living in North Carolina, we're close to the beach. You can go to the mountains and go to the beach. I work for the Chamber of Commerce, put a little patch on the shirt. What do you love about the beach? You like walking on the beach, the golden hour, maybe you like that, and metal detector people laying on the tan sand, getting on a sandbar. I got a question. Have you ever stood at the edge of the beach and just thought, wow, this is huge? Like, you can't even see the other side. Every time. What I do every time is I, I say to our kids, I say the same statement every time we go, it's still here. <laughs> it's actually an allusion that I'm making to Job chapter 38 where it talks about how God tells the ocean, you can only go this far. He controls it, he stops it. And it just keeps doing what it's doing. We're doing all of our stuff. It keeps doing what it's doing. And I wonder, and this is, I want you to, everybody participate. So if you, you don't like the ocean, um, fold your arms up and give me a dirty face. Uh, but if you like the ocean, and you raise your hand for that. How many of you here that like the ocean barely really go in it? Maybe you don't go in it at all. Maybe just like knee high. Maybe you just go out there and stand in it. But I mean, you're not snorkeling. You're not scuba diving. You're not deep sea fishing. You just see it and you like it. How many people would acknowledge that's true? Like just you like the ocean, but you barely go in it. All right. I don't know what percentage that is of the people that earlier said it, but it's a pretty high percent which would coincide with what we know to be true about the ocean. It's vast. There's all kinds of stuff in it. But we only know about, some people say 5% of the ocean has been explored. Others say it's certainly less than 10%, 8, 9, whatever it is. Um, it's not much. We live on the surface of it. We like it, but we don't want to go in. And it's one of the reasons because some of us are scared of it, right? Like, you know there's stuff in there. You ever do get out there and you're floating a little bit, and then all of a sudden you're like, something's, gonna, something's going to get my legs. Probably not thinking about an octopus. You're probably thinking about things with teeth, right? Like, I'll get a slide up here. We'll show some of them. These are the things you think of. Now, that's a great white shark. Those can get 16 to 20 feet long when they're as big as they can be. This next one gets up to 40 feet long. That's a whale shark. <laughs> if we just had a picture of it opening its mouth, you'd be like, it'd just swallow me. It doesn't even need teeth. The next one is another kind of shark. It's um, called a frill shark. You see it from an angle. It looks like an eel met up with a shark, and then they had a baby. It's got two rows of 25 um, teeth that are razor sharp. It's, uh, it's pretty scary, but nothing like the next one. This is called a goblin shark. So take two scary things, put them together, a goblin and a shark, and you got this guy. It's got translucent skin. It's hard to have a picture that makes that really clear, but those are just sharks. With the little that we know about the ocean, um, the estimates are that we have about 230,000 different types of creatures that we know about, and they estimate, but we can't know because we don't know, that there are over 2 million. So that means the majority of creatures on our planet, human eyes have never even seen. Here's a few that we have. If you don't like spiders, I would recommend staying out of the ocean. There are over 1,300 different species of spiders in the ocean. Like uh, seahorse, you've seen that before, and that's not a cartoon, that's a real picture. <laughs> that's called a sea dragon, doesn't need sunlight, um, they stay pretty low, it produces its own light, which is actually interesting. That's called a vampire squid that's over there. So we've got spiders and vampires and goblins, it's basically Halloween down there, <laughs> like every day, and it's huge. Listen to some of these stats um, that are out there. And, and like I said, there's so much we don't know, it's hard to even get stats on the creatures. But the ocean does make up 71% of the Earth's surface. 
It's the biggest ecosystem of the planet, holding 99% of all habitable space in the world. Hmm. The five main ocean basins, the Pacific, Atlantic, Indian, Arctic, and Southern Oceans, contain 94% of the world's wildlife. 94% of the world's wildlife. And we don't even know. There might be more. And 97% of all the water on our planet in those oceans. But listen to this statement. This is by a guy from NASA. NASA studies the ocean now. They also think it's going to teach us about space, which is interesting. This guy's name is Gene, Dr. Gene Feldman. He says, we have better maps of the surface of Mars and the moon than we do the bottom of the ocean. We know very, very little about most of the ocean. This is a guy who spent the last 25 years of his life studying the ocean. He's like, yeah, we don't know very much. <laughs> and that's interesting. USGS, that's the United States Geological survey on their website describes the ocean like this. And this is how a lot of people who study the ocean describe the ocean. They say the ocean influences and regulates the Earth's climate, acting like the planet's heart. Ocean currents circulate vital heat and moisture around the globe, similar to the human circulatory system. So I'm reading that. I'm thinking to myself, does it bother anybody that we know more about Mars than we do about our own planet? <laughs> that there's so much to know and learn, but we don't. It's kind of a mystery. I mean, there's reasons. It's dangerous. It's dark down there, but there's treasures. One estimate says there's about $60 billion in treasures, but there's more than that. There's life. In fact, and I'll share more with you this later in the message, one of the things we've discovered in the research that we've done is that life doesn't work the way that we thought it did. And we'll talk about that. Today's message is about going beneath the surface. The problem is, it's not that most of us want to be shallow people. We're just living our lives. And we enjoy what we enjoy, and we enjoy God, and we enjoy life, and we want our team to make the tournament tonight, and we talk about the weather with people in the lobby, and it's not like we're just trying to stay at the surface. We just do. But if you've ever longed to go deeper in your own life, and with God, this message is for you. If it's your first time at church, sorry, come back next week, because today we're going to go beneath the surface of our hearts and with God. We're going to look at a judge. His name is Jephthah. Um, he's the seventh judge in the book of Judges, depending on if you count certain people as judges that aren't called judges. Uh, people could debate that and argue that, but he's the seventh judge. In Judges chapter 11 is where we're going to spend most of our time. We'll look a little bit at 10. It sets it up, and 12 wraps it up, but Judges chapters 10, 11, and 12. In Judges chapter 11, in verse 1, when introduced to him. Now, remember the context for what's happening in the whole book. The people did what was right in their own eyes. I've almost always quoted Judges 21-25. You could look at Judges 17-6. It's repeated throughout the book that that's what's happening. So that's the problem. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. You do you. That we think we know best. And what happens is a repeated cycle. I'm going to pop the slide up just for people who want to see that or take a picture in your own study. I won't walk through that for you again. But we get deceived, it causes problems, we think we know it's right, then we cry out to God. I've said repeatedly in this series, two themes I want you to know. There's always a path of renewal. And when we cry, studying this week's message, I'm not sure I should have said it that way. But we're all learning. I'll tell you what I mean when we get into the passage. But what happens is, the last group, when we were looking at it last week, they didn't cry out. But then there's another judge, and there's not much about him in chapter 10. And then there's peace for a long period of time. And then there's another one, there's peace for a long period of time. But now, the seventh judge, we get seven false gods that they're worshiping, seven different nations that are mentioned in chapter 10. The number seven in the Bible is the number of completion, perfection. We're probably at the darkest place of their depravity a low point. One Bible commentator said, this is the climax of Canaanization, talking about the nation of Canaan, that Israel has become more like its culture than ever before. And the same is true with this judge, because even the deliverers are broken. And so look at it with me. Who is this? Judges chapter 11, verse 1, as we jump beneath the surface. Now Jephthah 
the Gileadite, and, now, and we're going to hear about some different ites here, okay? So we got the Israelites, we kind of know them, and then periodically you hear these other ites, or you ever like, man, just say parasites, termites, whatever. You don't even think about those names. All right, we're going to understand this passage. You need to know three different ites, okay? Gileadites, that just means they live in Gilead. So Raleighites, Cariites, Duramites, like that's all that means. In Gilead, there's three different tribes, part of Manasseh and two other tribes, that live there. They're Israelites. So Gileadites are mostly Israelites. Not that other people haven't moved there, but they own the land. Then there's the Ammonites. Uh, The main thing you need to know about them, they're not Israelites. They worship Canaan gods. They're Canaanites. Their chief god is named Chemish or Chemish. And some people think that he and Moloch are the same the Bible is really clear that one of the ways you worship Moloch was child sacrifice. That's important later in Jephthah's life. And then there's the Ephraimites. Ephraimites are also Israelites, and they're going to fight each other in chapter 12. The Gileadites and the Ephraimites. Now, so here's the deal. When we talk about Israel, a lot of times we're like, yeah, Israel. But they're like, they had different states, divisions. We oftentimes call them tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were one, but they all weren't all the same. <laughs> Like the United States of America. Have you been to Florida? Have you been to California? They're not the same. Have you been to Virginia? You've been to Massachusetts. They're not the same. But they're one. And so they fight each other in chapter 12. Ephraim's mad they got left out of the other fight. <laughs> Jephthah is not Gideon because they were mad about that before. And who is Jephthah? It says in verse 1, that he's a, a mighty warrior. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. All right, that sounds good. That's like what God said about Gideon. Next word's danger, but, contrast, mighty warrior, but, and I don't think that mighty warrior means he had medals of valor on. Here's why. He was the son of a prostitute. Some of your translations say whore. I have an elder that says, you like to say whore. I'm like, I'm reading the Bible. It just says it, all right? Gilead was the father of Jephthah. But did he have a father? Because look at the next verse. And Gilead's, everybody has a father. His dad wasn't there. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So he had a wife, but it wasn't Jephthah's mom, the whore. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. So he's kicked out of Gilead. Said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob or Tab. And worthless fellows collected around him. So he's part of a gang here. And Jephthah went out with him. Hmm. Interesting. After a time, the Ammonites, so there's the ites that we need to know, these are the ones that are not Israel, made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Wait, we need you back. We kicked you out, but come back. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah had learned some life lessons, hard knocks. Said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Hmm, Who else does Israel do that to? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah, he's got some street smarts here. He knows how to negotiate. A lot of survivors do. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, it's really interesting. Um, Did you notice? You might go back and read through it. How many times was God mentioned in those 11 verses? Oftentimes it says that God raised up a judge. He's strangely absent from this here, but he's at work using these ites to get beneath the surface to bring what's going on in heart and to reveal himself to these ites. Who are the ites again? You remember? All right. Anybody here ever had termites? Talk about ites. Anybody here ever had termites? I was in my garage the other day. I walked through my garage. I saw some bubbles on the paint. 
some wood trim, walked over. We have some home inspectors that go to our church. I didn't call them. (laughs) What would a home inspector do? I don't know. I'm just me. So I poked my finger into it, and the wood was dead. And then I ran my finger through, and there was a lot. There were termites that had been in there. I don't know a lot about termites, but I did a quick Google search. Do you know what the most dangerous termite is? The subterranean termite. They come from under the surface. The article that I read said that those termites can cover up to an acre of a house. So I don't know if anybody here has a house that's an acre big. They can do a lot of damage. Billions of dollars they do in damage. But you don't see them until the damage reaches the surface. But they're there, already working. God's using even the wickedness of the Ammonites who worship a God who you sacrifice your children to, to stir up and do a work to bring to the surface the pain and distress in the life of the Israelites so they'll turn to him. He's beneath the surface doing a work. And what happens in life when we get beneath the surface is we find him. And so our first point is this. When you get beneath the surface, you decide you want to go a little bit further, you'll learn the depths of God. And what you find is a God of infinite depth. The ocean's deep. The ocean is deeper than Everest is high. I talked about Mount Everest last week. Thousands of people have made it to the summit of Everest. Do you know how, people, how many people there are on the earth today? Today, not throughout all of history, just today. Do you know how many people there? World population is about 8 billion. On Thursday, when I Googled it, 7.8888888 billion. Some people died and born, and I don't know, about 8. Do you know how many have made it to the bottom of the ocean. Guess two here. Price is right. We've got our first bid in. Anybody else? Zero. Three is the answer. Eight billion on the planet today. Not all of history. Three have made it to the bottom. But there is a bottom. I'm talking about God is infinitely deep. You'll never stop exploring if you'll go there. But few people will go there. There's treasures, but it's dangerous. What if you find things you disagree with? What if you find things you don't like? What if he's not who you want him to be? I just hope he's who we need him to be. Thinking about what Bryce prayed. He's everywhere all the time. You can't deny his existence. You can say out loud you don't believe that he exists, but the Bible's clear that Even the person who lives doing what's right in their own eyes, Romans chapter 1 is like the book of Judges in the New Testament. Um, People denied God, and even though they saw the revelation of him, they instead, being fools, which is somebody who says there's no God, made themselves wise in their own, they thought they were wise in their own eyes, they did their own thing. But do you know what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19, or 18 and 19, or 19 and 20, is for For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Okay? That was before man existed. And the things that have been made, so just by creation. I'm not even talking about the Bible. I'm not talking about special word from heaven. I'm talking about just from creation, so they're without excuse. We all know there's a God, and he's everywhere always, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the depths, you're there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, So the Holy Spirit has to do a supernatural work. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Hmm. He's everywhere always. There's no denying him just by looking at creation. And by the work of his Holy Spirit, for those who love, for those, it's not for everybody, for those who love him, he will reveal the depth. Do you want to, if you love him, do you enjoy him? Will you go to the depths? But the reality is, it's not that most of us want to be shallow. It's not like, hey, you're, You're too deep for me. I'd like to just stay at the surface. Here's my brackets. (laughs) Did you see that it snowed? Like, no, no, it's not. That's not the thing. So we're just living our life, and we're a lot like Israel, and we don't cry out until we need Him. 
And let me ask you this. When's the last time you actually prayed the Lord's Prayer? And I'm not saying like, did you say the words? But think about the words. Did you, when's the last time you needed to pray this prayer? Your will, as it is in heaven, be done here on earth. Your kingdom come here. And like true, in my own heart, a lot of times my prayer, if it has to do with God's will, is more like, hey, could you make your will line up with what I'm wanting to do? How about this one? Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Who's really needed to pray that? Like, Publix, I mean, it snowed this morning, so they might not have any bread now, but Publix has your bread. Why do you need to pray to God about that? You really need that prayer? When is the last time you needed to pray for food? Not, I'm thankful, thank you God for this food. Like, where's my food coming from? How about this? Forgive us our debts, trespasses, sins, depends on your translation, as we forgive those around, like the ones who sin against us, trespass, have debts. As? Like, hmm. My prayers are more like, hey, the little teeny stuff that I do wrong, forgive that, and bring fire from heaven on those people who, whatever, around me. Guy who won't get out of the left lane in the express, whatever. Person who betrayed you. Like, wrath, revenge. Not you, I'm sure. Just me. Just your pastor. <laughs> um, deliver us from the evil one. Do you know that part of that? Matthew? version? To even acknowledge there is an evil one means you have to have an acknowledgement of an invisible world that we don't see. And if we're just living at the surface, why are we thinking about what Ephesians 6 talks about? A battle? It's not flesh and blood? That's going on around us all the time? It's like there's a whole world in our world that we've barely scratched the surface of. That's what's happening here in this passage. And then in these 11 verses that we've read so far, We're not even seeing God being talked about here. But we know that he's at work. If you jump up a few verses in chapter 10, uh, to set the context for chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 6 says, you know, you're worshiping all these different gods from these different nations. You've become like the culture, these seven nations, these different gods that are mentioned here. And and then things get bad. Hmm. Interesting. This seems to be a pattern that they go through. And uh, when things get bad, they cry out. And I said to you, when we cry, he comes. Well, he does come here, but it's kind of implied in the statements that I'm making and what we've been reading in Judges that when he comes, he's going to deliver. That's not what happens. Kind of shocking what takes place here because God uses sarcasm, which I love for reinforcing the way that I parent, but I'm not sure I love him saying it here. So look what it says. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But we know that in the past, it hasn't been genuine repentance. How do you know that? How do you know that, Scott? You can't know anybody's heart. Well, we know there's different kinds of grief. There's godly grief, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, I think it is. Um, If you guys have that version, pop it up for people. It leads to regret. A worldly grief leads to regret. A godly grief leads to repentance. What are we grieving? See, what's happening for most of Israel is they're calling out to God because he's the deliverer and he's the only one that can fix this thing. They don't want relationship. They want a transaction. We need you to do a thing for us that only you can do. And so we've gotten to the spot where only you can do this thing. We're crying out, come do your thing. And we know it's surface level repentance and not real heart repentance because time and truth end in the same place. They keep going to their real gods. So here they cry out and they acknowledge what their sin is. We've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. But the Lord talks here. When they get beneath the surface, it's kind of like these ites have caused this prompt. The termites do this thing, bring stuff to the surface. Now he's going to reveal some stuff they wouldn't normally see because now they're in their time of need. This is like when you get a doctor's call that changes your life. This is like when you get a note and your spouse is gone. This is like when your kids won't do what you want them to do. Here we go. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Okay, we're going way back. That's before this generation. And from the Amorites and from the Ammonites, not the same people, and the Philistines and the Sidonians, also the Amalekites, and, and then there's a people group that's never even been mentioned in the Bible before, the Moanites. Is that like Moana? Is the rock doing a voice for one of these people? Like, what's going on here? But apparently all these people oppressed them. 
They cried out. God delivered them. So what God does is he says, first, here's who I am. Also, here's what I've done. He's revealing himself. He's infinitely deep. He's revealing himself. And then he says in verse 13, you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, are they going to save you? Who's going to save you? I will not save you. What? What? I will save you no more. Uh-oh. Now we're really in trouble. Look at verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. Let me tell you something. When uh, you find out you have cancer, you're not calling your financial planner. What would it be like if you cried out to God and he said, oh, why don't you call your financial planner? That's your real God. Uh, what? My God would never say, maybe that's a problem. The kids won't follow Jesus. You're not calling the school that gave you your PhD saying, hey, can I talk to the dean? Why? Who cares? You can't do anything. You can change your kid's heart. Spouse leaves. Hey, why don't you take on another project at work? You're a workaholic, so, I mean, that's what's ruined your marriage, and that's why you're absent and passive, so why don't you just go... Go to your God. Why are you calling out on God? Because what happens is the wheels fall off on our life. And then we go to God. Why weren't you here? Why are you doing this? How come now we can get somewhere? It wasn't that he was absent. You were living on the surface. Now he's taking you to a new depth. And that's what he's doing here. The reason why he's sarcastic with them, he's not mocking them. He's piercing their hearts. He's doing whatever he has to do. There's a, this isn't like the smart kid in the back of the class that makes some snide comment, sarcasm. This is the sarcasm of, how's that working out for you? Why don't you keep doing what you're doing? And he's revealing to them, because you need me, but you don't want me. You just need me. You don't want relationship. You're using me for a transaction. This is trash talk right here. He's talking trash about the other gods. God invented trash talk, just so you know. So anybody, if you're ever playing a game, like you're playing a sport and you say something to your opponent talking trash and they're like, well, I thought you were a Christian. Be like, you just haven't gone that deep with Jesus yet. Like, just tell them. <laughs> Elijah, I mentioned Elijah last week in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. In 1 Kings chapter 18, when they're crying out to Baal, do you know what he says to them? Maybe he's on the toilet. That's sarcasm. <laughs> maybe your God's sleeping or maybe he's on the throne. Not the one you think. David talks trash to Goliath. You say, but, yeah, but none of that's God. Those, I mean, they're humans. They mess up too. Re- listen to this. Uh, the kings of the earth, this is Psalm 2, uh, set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. <laughs> How funny when people try to fight God. I'm looking at one of my friends here, um, Tim. Tim, I didn't know I was going to call you out, but when we were in Israel together in 2020, we're going again. Uh, that trip's full. I'm not trying to get you to go on the trip. If you want to go again, uh, we'll do it again in the future. But um, he did a devotional when we were on um, the Mount of Olives, which is the last place that Jesus' foot touched the earth. It's where he says, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And when you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can see the entire city of Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts. It's where his foot's going to, when he comes back, that's where he's going to, first time his foot touched the ground, it's going to be there. Mount Split and Two. It's all talked about. Significant place. But when we were standing there, when Tim was done, um, he shared an incredible devotional. Um, um, our guide talked about how there's a Muslim leader that knew that Jews thought that when the Messiah came or came back, Messianic Jews, or uh, that he was going to come through a certain gate. And so they put a brick wall in front of the gate. <laughs> really? Have you seen the tomb? <laughs> Death didn't stop them. The rock ain't going to do it. And you're, no one's going to the wall going, what kind of mortar did they use? What's the Messiah-proof mortar? Oh, and there's a cemetery there because Jews aren't supposed to go through a cemetery. It's laughable to think you're going to fight God. And that's what God does. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And if you don't think he's a trash talker. Read for Samuel. I think it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, when he makes a false god keep falling before him. <laughs> yeah. But he tells us to guard our hearts as a wellspring of life. 
the God who's everywhere and revealing himself tells us our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. But then he uses this stuff in our life to take us beneath the surface so that he can deal with our, because he's the God who sees your heart, even if you don't want to go there. He's already there in the deepest, even the darkest parts of your own heart. He's there. He sees. And sometimes he takes you there, which is what he's doing with Israel in this passage, through a broken leader, Jephthah. Mighty warrior. Yep. Not the greatest resume. Gang member, kicked out of his own town, outcast, unloved, rejected. Mom's a whore. There I said, I didn't read it and said it. Sorry. But from the Bible, um, not, a, not a great pedigree there. And that reveals God's grace. And so just in this passage, we see infinite, unimaginable grace. We see in his infinite depth that he sees even the stuff you don't see, that he's everywhere all the time, and that even when you don't see him, he's working. Hmm. That's interesting. So why won't we go there? A lot of it's like the reasons why we don't explore the ocean. It's dangerous. But there's an article you can read yourself, especially if you like science stuff. It was in the BBC. It's called, Why is NASA Exploring the Deepest Parts of the Ocean? And what the article will go on to tell you is that at one time, and some of you were taught this in school, they were taught about the food chain, and that at one time we thought that all the living things on this planet, their life revolved around the sun, S-U-N, not talking about Jesus, it's a NASA article here. And so... We thought, you know, photosynthesis and all that kind of stuff, biology, you want to make out with me? I totally get it. Like, different people learn different things. That all the light came, plants, vegetarian animals, herbivores would eat the plants, meat-eating animals, carnivores would eat the herbivores. <laughs> so if you're a vegetarian, somebody says, my food eats your food. Yeah, that's exactly the food cycle they're talking about there. And then they would have waste or they'd miss some and it dropped to the bottom and the bottom feeders ate what was left over or the waste. But ultimately it all came from the sun until 1977 when NASA dropped a remote vehicle 8,000 feet beneath the ocean and found stuff we had no idea was on our planet. Hmm. In fact, some of the things that we found um, are similar to moons on Jupiter. NASA's studying some of the things in our ocean because they want to know, maybe we've been wrong about the possibility of life forms on other planets. Because we found there is life forms on our planets that can live in pressure that makes no sense that would squeeze all of the cells out of any animals that we have here or would have known about before that, that don't require direct sunlight. In fact, many of them produce their own light. They actually feed off of chemicals that come from volcanic heat in the bottom of the ocean. What? And what they said is that these animals, now they believe in evolution so that they've become this way, um, but they say things like this. This is a quote, um, talks about a guy, uh, Tim Shank, and so different scientists that are there, but you can read the article yourself. The scientists were perplexed how, how could species in the Hadal zone, the Hadal zone, named, uh, Greek mythology, that's how they did a bunch of their naming, uh, Hades, hell, a place where they didn't think life was possible. How could species in the Hadal zone survive such crushing pressure? The pressure is 15,000 pounds per square inch, says Shank, Tim Shank. It's so intense that individual cells of an animal will be squeezed out. Since that first sighting in 1977, scientists have discovered that organisms living in such depths have adapted on a cellular level to survive down there. Hmm. But we're trying to go back in 2014 and the vehicle that was created imploded, probably because of the pressure. We're trying to go back again. Oh, it's so dangerous. Why we go? Because there's treasure there. And I don't just mean the $60 billion that people believe is shipwrecked down there. Life. Life different. It's the reason why NASA, let me summarize that article if you don't like science. Because the way we thought and what we thought was necessary for life, we were wrong. So maybe there's more to know about. But we, in order to do that, we have to investigate what scientists call the heart of our planet. And we've got to go deep. But it's dangerous. But there's treasure. That's what it's like with us. Dangerous. Do you know one of the things you find when you go deep in your own heart? Duplicity. 
when you go into the depths, are you sure you want to go? Some people say, I want to go deeper. You find the darkness of duplicity. That's what happens with Jephthah and the part of the passage that's the reason why most people never talk about this passage. It's, we've read the first 11 verses and you, you see who he is and you see God's grace. He calls a survivor. I mean, this guy's on his own. Doesn't really have a dad. Dad's got a different wife and different kids to take care of. His mom is involved in transactions for survival and when he calls him a warrior, I think he's more like a Mike Tyson. I don't know if y'all know much about Mike Tyson. You know why Mike Tyson's such a good fighter? He got bullied when he was a kid. Listen to the interviews. He talks repeatedly about bullying. He's anti-bullying message that he gives. He has a list, if you've never heard that. They called him the fairy boy as a kid. He said the first time he got in a fight, he's about nine or ten years old, never had a loving human relationship. His mom's an alcoholic. She beat him. Um, they lived in condemned housing. Tough, tough environment. Not a big family. He said other kids in the neighborhood had like 20 brothers and sisters. So he didn't mess with them because they had like a crew. He didn't have any people. So the, the first thing in his life that he ever loved was a pigeon. That's what he had. It's about nine or 10. He said a kid, 13, 14, I've heard him tell a story different times and he uses a different age, but somewhere several years older than him. So you think about when you're that age, a few years means a big deal. Took his pigeon, broke its head off, threw it at him, called him fat, and a bunch of other statements I wouldn't say while I'm preaching. And then his friend said, you gotta fight that guy. And he did. And he won. <laughs> so, yeah, stand up to the bully. There you go. Here's another piece of wisdom. Don't pick on Mike Tyson, all right? <laughs> um, after the first service, somebody texted me, you know that somebody threw a water bottle on a plane at him? I'm like, did you think I was endorsing that? I was like, no, I'm saying, what an idiot. Don't mess with Mike Tyson. <laughs> uh, I'm sure Evander Holyfield, but whatever. They're different, different story. <laughs> he learned to fight because he had to. That's what happens with survivors. Different stories in this room. Maybe your mom wasn't a prostitute. And have you ever been around people though? They're kind of absent parents, and you just got to figure it out. And maybe that's your story. Some some people get crushed. Some people become really strong. The reason why they come to Jephthah in this passage, because they're weak, and they need a strong person to stand up for them. We can't fight. We don't like you. We don't want you taking our stuff. Get out of here. Now we need you. That's a lot like what Israel does with God. Now we need you to, because you got something we can't, we don't want a relationship. We just want a transaction. Who else in the Bible is rejected by their own people? The only people that come to them are outcasts. Oh, and if you look at his genealogy, his name's Jesus, Matthew, Rahab, prostitute, not the most stellar background we got going here. God's grace isn't just that he forgives your sin. It's what he gives you even in your sin, in your darkest moments, at the deepest, darkest places of your depravity. He'll reveal himself. Jephthah probably didn't even know that was happening. Who goes there? Rejected? Yep, Jesus. Okay, by his own people? Then called on when I want a transaction, not a relationship. Mm. That's why God was mocking them at the beginning. And then you've got this deliverer that it doesn't even say God raised up. But what happens next? Um, he has a conversation and it shows that he knows the Bible really well. He sends messengers on behalf of him and so these ambassadors, will just talk like it's him. Uh, he asks the Ammonites, with an N, Ammonites, why do you want to fight me? They said, you stole our land. He says, actually, let's get our facts straight. <laughs> if you ever watch The Office. Fact. <laughs> Bears, a beats, a Battlestar Galactica. He says, actually, let me get your facts straight. And he explains the Bible, verses 12 through 27. And he says, um, the land was actually taken from the Amorites, not the Ammonites, and it wasn't us, it was the Lord. Oh, this theology is really good. And then he says, if you're so concerned about it, why don't you go ask your God, Chemish, Chemish, the one you sacrifice children to? Why didn't he give you what you should possess? Oh, that sounds a lot like what God said when he was mocking the false gods, because that's what he's doing. Now Jephthah's talking divine trash. Your God's so awesome, let's roll. You started this fight, God's going to finish it. That's how the end of that part goes. Verse 29, 28, the guy says, yeah, I'll roll, we'll fight. 
Then verse 29, look what happens. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. That's awesome. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah. So we're going on this journey with him. We're going on a walk. And then verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow. It goes south right here. Wait, one verse ago, the spirit of the Lord was on him. And he just said to the Ammonites, God's going to be the one that gets the victory here. But here we see that we've got a compromised man. Because he knows the Bible, all the verses that led up to this. But when you look at how he lives, time and truth into the same place, he's got great theology, pagan influence. He's like the culture. He's doing what's right in his own eyes. If you will give the Ammonites, he's talking to God, Yahweh, into my hand, then whatever comes out of my doors. Now, they didn't have dogs like we have Fido. You're not thinking this is an animal. The custom would be that a woman would greet you coming out of your house. Maybe his daughter, maybe his wife. Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be to the Lord. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Nowhere else in the New Testament is a burnt offering talked about metaphorically. So you're saying child sacrifice. You're worshiping Yahweh, who, by the way, is very clear in the Bible, is against human sacrifice. And the guy knows the Bible. There's some slides, if anybody thinks that I'm making that up. Just some verses. I don't have time to read them. I knew I wouldn't have time to read them, so just put the verses up. You know, somebody like take a picture of that or see it or whatever. Um, you can look those verses up. Now, to be fair, before we get too far into this vow that he makes and what happens, it says at the end that he fulfilled his vow. Uh, there are different views on this. My view is that he actually killed his daughter. It's not explicitly said. I'll read you what is explicitly said. Some people, and I think I had an argument with a friend of mine this week, who, a Hebrew super smart guy, all that kind of business. He thinks, and a lot of other people do too, that he committed his daughter to perpetual virginity. Because what happens next, blow your mind. Like if your dad came home and was like, I made this promise to God, now I gotta kill you, are you gonna go, okay? Because <laughs> that's what she does. And then she says, but can I have two months? No one knows why two months. No one knows why two months. Can I have two months to go and mourn my virginity? Okay. Why didn't you ask for like 25 years? I don't know, whatever. And then she gets the two months and she comes back and says that he fulfilled the vow. I think you can be an honest Bible student and come to either one of those conclusions, but I think the point, either way, the point's the same. The point, he, he didn't know that you can, if you make a rash vow, read Leviticus 21 through 5 when it talks about God condemning child sacrifice. You don't think God's gonna, you can undo that vow even though it's not really to him. It's not consistent with what he said. You shouldn't even be making that. You're trying to worship God in a pagan way even though you know true things about him. You're talking about a God of grace. He didn't pick you because of who you were, Jephthah. And he didn't ask you to, he already put his favor on you. He already told it, who's the deliverer? You know in your head these things to be true, but when we look at your life, there's duplicity, and I don't think he can see it. And here you got the seventh judge and these seven things, and you got the depth of depravity. What's the problem? Everyone does this right in their own eyes. He thinks, he thinks he's going to earn more favor from God. He thinks he's doing what's right. He thinks he's showing his commitment. Oh, he doesn't see it. We hate duplicity and everybody else. Like we hate it. When you see somebody, Lance Armstrong cheats, you're like, God, oh, what? Well, he shouldn't have cheated. Oh, you can't even ride a bike up that. Anyway, we see a judge that doesn't make a fair verdict and you're like, is he taking a bribe? We see a politician say one thing and then change it to something else. We see a pastor, you know, condemn homosexuality, Ted Haggard. Then it's got male prostitutes, we Ravi Zacharias stuff. We hate that stuff. Do we see it in ourselves? See it in your parents? Do you see it when you parent? <laughs> Remember when I was a kid, pre-Jesus, there was a philosopher group um, named the Beastie Boys. <laughs> Late 80s, early 90s, and the song, you got to fight for your right to party. May or may not have heard that song yesterday, and there's a line in there where it says, uh, Pops caught you smoking, and he said, no way. That hypocrite smokes two packs a day. You see, and so for, like for me at my house, it's like, give me those chips. You can't eat chips before you go to bed. Get up to your room. You know, it's like, we hate it when we see that in other people. But what about, and us? some of y'all saw um, the Murdoch case that happened a couple weeks ago. You see that? Spouses looking at each other like, I told you not to watch all that. Now he's going to condemn you. No, actually, I watched a bunch of that stuff too. 
Started watching the, demo, the um, different documentaries that were on it. And different, you know, what, does this one, what's there? Are they trying to, is, there, is that real information? Watch these other people. I went to my wife. I was like, Shanna, you wouldn't believe this stuff. Like this guy, like he's a lawyer. He represents the law. And I've, I said in the first service, I was just trying to say he looks like a preppy. Like he looks like a, um, a nice Southern gentleman. And I was like, he wears vineyard vines. He's got the glasses. I wasn't trying to offend anybody. I, somebody came up there like, I'm mad. You shouldn't have said that. I don't know. I was like, wearing vineyard vines. I was like, I said, so the next time I preach, you guys can hold me accountable to this. I said, I bought a vineyard vine shirt yesterday. I'm not against that. Um, so next time I preach, I told him, I said, as a peace offering to you, I will wear vineyard vines. So I'm sorry. My point is, when you see what Alex Murdoch did, um, already been convicted, so I'm not like just making this stuff up, killed his wife and his son. Don't know if he killed his housekeeper. Don't know if he killed a bunch of other dead bodies around him a bunch. But we know he stole a bunch of money from vulnerable people, people in wheelchairs, hundreds of thousands of dollars. His housekeeper, he stole $4.3 million of insurance money. Should have went to her family. She's super poor, raised his kid. And you're like watching that going, how, how can you do? Why did you do that? Now listen, if the guy was in the mafia, it'd still be bad, but we wouldn't be talking about it on the news. We just go, that's what they do. So the mafia does. It's because we expect a guy wearing vineyard vines and nice glasses that represents the law to be different. Some of y'all have dogs. I love dogs. I don't like when I go to someone's house and they go, no, 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 my dog doesn't bite. I want to go, yeah, he does. He maybe hasn't bitten anyone yet. You put him in the right situation, hasn't eaten a few days, thinks he's threatened, he'll bite. Do you know why? He's a dog. And we know in our minds, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why do we say statements like this? Can you believe that, a, what, a sinner sinned? Hmm. You ever been part of a conversation, maybe you were starting it or maybe you were listening to it and someone said, can you believe that so-and-so did such and such? It doesn't matter who the so-and-so are, what the such and such is for the sake of my analogy here, but can you believe that blank, fill in the blank? First of all, next time you're in a conversation like that, say, listen. Uh, yes, I can, uh, because I think I'm capable too, but I'm not getting sucked into your vortex of self-righteousness right now, because that's, let me translate what this means. Can you believe that so-and-so did such and such? Can you believe this person that I know or know of? It's usually not a relationship, because you'd never treat someone you love this way. It's called slander and gossip. You might think it's okay. God says it's evil. You're doing what's right in your own eyes. Sound familiar? And then they did, and it's fill in the blank, is some sin I could never imagine myself. I mean, I've got this teeny little sin. I, we all sin. <laughs> but not that sin. And that means you don't know your own duplicity. Not only do you not see probably your slander, your gossip, your self-righteousness, but you don't know what you're capable of. We're all capable of far more than we realize. And that's why many of us don't want to go into the deep because it's dark and it's dangerous, but there's, his grace is there. There's treasures there. That's what we see happen. One of the reasons why people argue for perpetual virginity is because in the New Testament, Jephthah is spoken of highly, Hebrews chapter 11. And it says that she was mourning her virginity. But this is what it says. And at the end of the two months, she returned, verse 39, to her father who did with her according to his vow. Burnt offering was the vow. Maybe it was metaphorical. The one place in the Bible that it's metaphorical, maybe here. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but it doesn't seem that's what's being said to me. If you disagree, I love you. Probably love the Bible just as much as I do. That's great. It's possible to disagree and still be friends, just so you know. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. And so here's this guy, no real family before. This was his only daughter, didn't have any son at that time. The way your legacy went on was children and land. That's done. I think that we see here, he is a picture of his people. He does what's right in his own eyes. But God is gracious because the story is not about Jephthah, it's about him. And what's going on in your heart isn't about the circumstances. It's like, I told you the termites thing happened. Yeah, termite thing happened. That was bad. They um, had to come to my house, rip out all the wood, kill the termites, put the wood back, get it all sealed back up like it was before, and it was all free because I had a warranty. 
And the Bible says that for those who love him, he's going to show you the depths of who he is, 1 Corinthians 2.10. It also says this, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, what does creation do? It reveals him, will be able to separate us from the love of God if you're in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know him? He wants you to know more, but it's dangerous. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take us supernaturally beyond things that I've said. Will you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that things can only happen by your Spirit. You even say that in the Corinthians passage, that it's by your Spirit that you reveal the depths of who you are, and it's your Spirit that is there present in the depths. Even those deceptive places, the heart is deceptive and wicked, but then in Ezekiel, 36, 26, you say you give us a new heart. Remove the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Some people here heard these words today. And they're survivors like Jephthah. Because of pain, there's scar tissue on their heart. Will you cut through that? Your word is a sword. Some people here, they'll leave and immediately forget what they saw. Will you reveal to us about ourselves through the Bible, like you talk about in James? Father, we have a supernatural conversation with people right now, and some that might not even know you. And they might, like Alec Murdoch, look like a great upstanding citizen, a, a holder of maybe we look like Christians. Maybe outside we know what to say. Maybe we know that we're all sinners, and we know that Jesus died, and we know that he rose from the dead, but we don't know you. Maybe a hard conversation you have with somebody to say, why don't you go worship your, why are you at church? Why don't you worship the God that you really worship? Why don't you just call it to me when you need to, why don't you get delivered by that God too? And what he's really saying is, do you want me? Will you enjoy me, not just what I can do for you? We use God for his gifts, that's called idolatry. When we come to him for who he is, that's called worship. God, will you make us worshipers in spirit and in truth? That we worship you with all that we are by the power of your Holy Spirit flowing through us. And what we bring, it's not great. But you take it and change it. Will you change us? Will you chisel away a little bit of each one of us today that doesn't look like Jesus? Somebody that's coming to you, they're unsure, seeking, fearful, don't want to get it wrong, but seeker of truth, will you remove one of the weights that's holding them back. Whatever it is, get them a little bit closer. People that do know you, but not the way they could, maybe only know 5% of what they could know in their faith. Will you show them some of the depths today of who you are? That your grace is more than just forgiveness, that your grace is giving of yourself, revealing of yourself, empowering us. When you get into it, when Jeff, the story, stuff that he did that a lot of people would be like, ah, I don't know about that characteristic, fighter, negotiator. It's the very stuff you used. Hmm. And people who have been crushed and haven't become stronger because of difficult circumstances, they know what it is to be used. I pray you'd show them what it is to be loved. Those that are survivors and are strong, a lot of times they struggle to trust. Will you chip away at the callousness on their hearts? I won't say amen, but you can when you're ready. Embrace and the worship team will lead us in a song. If you feel led to stand, you can stand. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.